What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. You're listening to The Exchange. Here's today's show. Thank you, Brian. I'm John Fort in for Kelly Evans. Here's what's ahead. A whipsaw market with the major averages clawing back from morning lows. But is this reversal only coming because Washington is promising more free money? And the testing fiasco across America. New data showing that some results are taking a full seven days to be completed. Makes contact tracing nearly impossible. How can this still be happening? And what does this mean for America's hopes of reopening? Plus, the pizza trade, San Francisco's office building blues, and painting your way to profits. But we begin with Bob Pisani and today's markets. Bob. And, John, it's been a choppy couple of trading days. Uh, the S&P moving at a fairly wide 40-point range throughout the day. We were flat at the open, still on the upside. Uh, Dow Jones Industrial Average, for once, it's being weighed down, believe it or not, by Apple and Microsoft and Pfizer. I haven't seen that in a long time. Being helped a little bit by some of those deep cyclical names I'm talking about, energy and industrials. S&P 500, as I mentioned, uh, in a range right now throughout most of the day. By the way, the VIX is back over 30, hasn't been there uh, in a couple of weeks. The real story today is that continued rotation out of tech and momentum and into what we broadly call value names. I'll show you about that. But we talked earlier in the day, some of these cloud computing names that have been strong or weak this week. This is in the last two days. Software stocks are down. Internet stocks are down. This is all part of that. I call that that tech momentum trade here uh, that's been so strong in the last two weeks. This is just giving back a fraction of the gains that we've, we've seen in the last two weeks. Value, that's IVE, that's the ETF for that, up 1% for the week. What is value? Well, it's mostly cyclical names, deep cyclical names, industrials here. So you've got auto companies doing a little better uh, today, for example, Ford and General Motors. Uh, industrial names like Caterpillar are, are up. Materials like Freeport, deep industrials like Honeywell. Those are the classic value names that you're seeing, as well as energy stocks. Uh, struggling recently, uh, but you can see today a good day for Apache, Exxon, helping the Dow, Halliburton, and EOG. So where are we here? The market risk is very clear right now. Remember, the reopening positive story is starting to morph a little bit more into a potential reclosing story, but not quite. The two-day shift has been from tech to cyclicals, and the market is still not convinced that a complete shutdown is imminent because that's why we're seeing the shift into these value names. If there was a complete worry that we were going to shut down again, folks, we'd be down a lot more and certainly there'd be no place to hide. Guys, back to you. Well, all right. Thanks, Bob. It changes every day. Let's dig deeper now into the bank earnings. Wilfred Frost joins me now with the biggest takeaways. Wilf. Hey, John. So uh, the key takeaway, provisions for bad potential loans rose for all banks from Q1 to Q2 and more than expected. The big question for investors now is whether this will be the peak for those provisions. Management not able to give that guarantee despite it being their base case expectation. That said, even despite rising COVID cases in some places since quarter end, Jamie Dimon said, quote, we feel exactly the same today as we did at the end of the quarter for the mark to market for provisions. On the positive side of things, trading and investment banking for Citi and JP Morgan was incredibly strong, especially fixed income currencies and commodities. This provided a huge offset to the pressures in retail banking. 
Wells Fargo, of course, does not have that offset, and their dividend cut from 51 cents per share to 10 cents per share, uh, far bigger than expected. Here is City CEO Mike Corbett summing up the ongoing uncertainty for bank investors. Simply put, normalization to me is, you know, am I, am I willing to get on the airliner? Am I willing to get in a subway? Am I willing to go into a crowded venue to watch a sporting event or a concert or what it may be? And I think realistically, when we get to that third bucket, I just don't see that coming. And I would say, you know, I would say many don't see that coming until we feel like there's a, 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 an antivirus, a vaccine that's available uh, for the mass population around that. And so uh, I think one of the things that people struggle with today is the disconnect in some ways between where the market is in some ways and actually where we are in terms of this health, health pandemic. JP Morgan has been uh, holding on to slight gains just by three basis points now. Uh, Cities, you can see, down 2.5%. Wells down 5%. CFO John Shrewsbury will join us on Closing Bell. Yeah, Wilf, uh, it, it's, it's kind of hard to parse sometimes the bad news and the good news. But on these loan provisions from the banks, I mean, on the one hand, you could say, yeah, they're prepared. But on the other hand, uh, I believe we had J.P. Morgan's CFO saying, yeah, they're socking that money away because they expect unemployment might be over 10 percent through the first half of next year. Mm-hmm. Ouch. Well, I, I don't think you can ever spin provisions for, for bad loans as a good thing, though, Uh, You can point out the fact that they are not cash charges. This is setting aside money in case uh, of a rainy day. So they haven't had to write it off yet, as it were, if you see what I mean. So it's preparing for possible uh, turn worse, but they're not taking it as a cash charge uh, yet. You you can see the positive in two, three, four quarters time if they're able to release that back. Uh, I think the the key thing on that economic outlook thing, point, John, is that uh, all of their base cases is that this will have been the peak for provisions, but none of them are sure that the base case will play out because there's just so much uncertainty that remains. And and one thing that they did all point out was that without the government support that exists, things would already be a lot worse than they are. And uh, we need to see some of those government programs extended. Yeah, it's getting hard to put a peg in exactly how bad things are. Uh, It changes moment to moment. Will, thank you. Our next guests both seem to be taking a cautious approach to this market, one making a loose comparison to the rah-rah days of the dot-com bubble and the other worry that hyped-up stock prices for some market darlings are simply never going to live up to the hype. Let's bring in Simeon Hyman, global investment strategist at ProShares Advisors, and Jamie Cox, managing partner at Harris Financial Group. Uh, Guys, good afternoon. Afternoon. Uh, Simeon, uh, tell me, what's your reaction in particular to uh, the, the latest news out of the banks? Look, I like the big provisions. I mean, that's being conservative, appropriately conservative. And if they're socking that money away and we're trading it just barely over one times book, I kind of like that better than nine times book for the tech sector. So do you like it for the banks specifically or do you like it for the broader economy? Because isn't this kind of like, you know, running to the hardware store to batten down the hashes because a hurricane's coming? Well, look, the market's being propped up by hopes of fiscal stimulus in the very short run. So, you you could interpret the high provisions as very slightly bearish compared to war, but we already knew we were in a rough spot 
with, uh, with, with the path of the virus and the economy. It's one of the reasons why I think price the book's the right metric these days, because we just don't know what earnings uh, are going to be over the next several quarters. But I do like that. I, I like the lower valuations on a book basis, and I like the provisions as you look past the next couple of quarters into the next couple of years. All right, Jamie, do you look at these bank provisions as more of a canary in the coal mine or, or more of a sign that, boy, sure, these big companies are prepared? Well, I think banks are being very sanguine. I mean, J Jamie Dimon came out a few minutes ago and said, you know, this is not your typical recession. A lot of the recessionary effects are going to be backloaded. So I think that it's really responsible for them to, to do these loan loss provisions up front. But at the same time, bank earnings were very much saved by fixed income trading and things like that, Q3 earnings are not going to be as good. So I think when you're looking forward to whether you should buy the stocks now or wait, you have to realize that if you take out those extraordinary fixed income trading options, that they were probably in the same boat as Wells Fargo. So I, I would wait if I'm you know really paying attention to whether I'm buying banks right now. I think there's a, there's a little bit more to come before we you know call the all clear. And, and I worry personally about you know what the what the reopening looks like. I would love for this to go away just as much as anyone else, but it just seems like we're it's just going to be lower for longer. The malaise is going to last, and the longer it lasts, the more economic damage that happens to people. Yeah. The more chance there is for all the bad things to happen. So I, I I think it's a little bit too early yet to call the to to, to call this a success. Well, then Jamie, we we also got to talk about the elephant in the room uh, and the donkey in the room. And that's the election coming at the end of the year, which is bound to be a source of, of some volatility when you consider that there's uncertainty around reopening, uh, uh, uncertainty around stimulus and uncertainty around politics. Is is the politics just uh, another straw on that camel? I don't think the politics has anything to do with it. People pay mm -hmm. way too much attention to, you know, who's in power and all that kind of thing. And that's something for another day. But right now it's all about whether or not we can reopen the economy safely, get people back to school, get people back to work, because everything stops and starts there. We don't get that. It doesn't matter who's in power. They're going to be faced with the same challenges, and they're going to have to respond to it with fiscal stimulus, which is not necessarily the best thing. You want economic growth. You want organic right. ability to grow. You don't want this artificial need yeah. for government to come in and fill the gap. So I, no. don't, I don't really think it matters too much. All right. So, Simeon, th there's a lot of stretched valuations right now in tech and in growth. But, I mean, it's not quite like it was 20 years ago. These companies are making money. As an investor, what do you do? Yeah, that's exactly right. It isn't sock puppets and eyeballs anymore. So they are making <laughs> money. And, in fact, return on assets in tech are higher than the overall market. And they're quite low in value. So, in other words, the instinct to rotate to value now might not pay off because it's been such a value trap and a gambler's dilemma for so long. We like quality at a reasonable price, if you will, uh, perhaps consistent dividend growers in large cap. You know, over 10 percent of the S&P has actually cut its dividends so far. By the way, there have been some raises actually are outstripping cutters. But if you look at, say, the S&P 500 dividend aristocrat index, which is an index of companies that have raised their dividends for 25 straight years, you only have one cutter, and you're trading at a discount to the market valuation with return on assets and other fundamentals that look pretty decent. So I would be worried about tech. I don't think I'd take the full, the full swing all the way to value, but somewhere in that quality range makes a lot of sense to us. Yeah, quality at a reasonable price. It's usually a good thing to go with if you can find it. Uh, Simeon, Jamie, thank you. Thank you. Thank you.
And coming up, COVID cases keep spiking as testing backlogs keep growing. A closer look at why we can't seem to get this right. Plus, it's like using tin cans and string. That's how Dr. Michael Olsterholm describes the way the government is collecting virus data and says a standard approach is needed and it's needed now. He joins me live next. And a different way to play the housing trade. This stock is up 25% in the past three months. The name and what makes it a good investment ahead. This is The Exchange on CNBC. The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back to The Exchange. As cases continue to spike, testing continues to be a problem with wait times for results getting longer and longer. Our Meg Terrell has the very latest. Meg. Hey, John. Well, Quest Diagnostics out with an update last night saying that for most patients, those who are not in the hospital or who are uh, symptomatic healthcare workers, uh, average wait times to get their test results are now more than seven days. And as you can see here, that's been growing uh, from about two to three days on average from early June. And Quest is not the only commercial lab seeing this. LabCorp is also seeing its delays uh, up to four to six days now for returning test results from specimen pickup. Bioreference Laboratories telling us they return results in three days or less. And Quest really um, citing the uptick in demand in the surgeon cases, particularly across the south, southwest, and west for this. Now, Admiral Brett Girard, who is uh, heading up testing in this country, saying that there is more technology coming on board that should help with this come the fall. Uh, he points to point-of-care tests, like antigen tests, for example, 15 to 20 million of which he says are coming online by September or October, and also a strategy of pooled testing, where you test five to ten samples per test. But, John, there's a growing frustration that people are observing pro sports players, for example, getting easy access to testing. Hassan Whiteside uh, posting on social media that he was getting his 20th COVID test, the NBA testing its players in that bubble in Orlando every other day. Uh, They gave us a comment saying that their testing in Orlando will not result in capacity being diverted from the community. They say by bringing new testing capacity to Central Florida, launching a mobile testing site open to the public, and bringing in point-of-care testing to support not only the NBA, but members of the community in Orlando, our program will actually be additive to public testing. But John, there are a lot of questions about this. And so to answer them, we're going to talk with Bioreference Laboratories Chairman Dr. John Cohen, who joins us now. They just signed on to do the testing for the NBA. Dr. Cohen, great to see you. Um, Tell us about what the turnaround times look like for you guys, for the general public versus for the pro sports teams you're working with. Sure. So uh, thanks, Meg. So we have multiple different clients. We have governments, hospitals, physicians, um, all sorts of industries, sports franchises. We're talking with multiple colleges, public schools, urgent care, unions. So there are a whole host of different verticals of different types of people that need all all sorts of testing. So uh, what we've done in Florida um, is we actually have increased our capacity at our Melbourne laboratory 
In addition, we're providing even more testing to our hospital, urgent care, physicians, and the general public. We also run a bunch of the uh, testing for the drive-throughs. We do a, a whole slew of testing for different types of entities within the state. So actually within the last couple of weeks, um, we've actually increased uh, the amount of resources we're providing to the state of Florida, in addition to the added platforms that we brought to the Melbourne Laboratory. Still, uh, your turnaround times on average of three days for regular right. folks versus you know reports we've seen of what, 12 to 15 hours to process the NBA players' tests. You know, a lot of people feel like they need their health information. People in the public are getting tested because they're potentially worried about exposure to COVID. So is there a disparity here that you can fix? No, I don't. Actually, I don't think there's a disparity. First off, on the turnaround time, we had extended our turnaround time a couple of weeks ago. We had, like many of the other commercial labs, um, had a longer turnaround time. And the reason that was, I think it's important to know, is we had a a nursing home crisis here in New York. We signed up over 400 nursing homes uh, in partnership with New York State. We tested a quarter of a million people of the quarter of a million employees because of that vulnerable population. And we were very proud of that decision to help the state get through the pandemic with the nursing home crisis. That had a huge impact on our turnaround time for about a week and a half to two weeks. Uh, Then we regrouped and now we're back to two to three days. In terms of when people's turnaround time, a lot of it depends on logistics. It depends on when that specimen is taken. It depends on which lab it goes to. It depends on when that specimen arrives in the laboratory. And it depends on which batch it goes into. So whether or not, so here's our commitment. Our commitment is if a patient is in the hospital, if they're in the intensive care, if they're a healthcare worker, if they're a frontline worker, those people go to the front of the line. We've always done that since March 13th when we started our COVID testing. And we continue to do that today. So, Dr. Cohen, Dr. Cohen, it's it's John Fort. Are you essentially saying this is the best uh, that we can do, that you feel that we are as a nation, or maybe you're just speaking for for you specifically, that we're triaging this correctly? Well, that that is a great question. So the question I have for people, the question I would have for you is, If you're a large employer and thousands of employees go back to work because of your testing ability, where is that relative to a college or university or student going back to school? Where is that relative to a nursing home? Where is that relative to a hospital who's trying to bring back elective procedures to get up and running again? There are literally hundreds of different scenarios of people trying to get testing. We've had people who want to test for retail, hospitality, manufacturing, food service, professional services, casinos, sports franchises. My question, my, so for us, I don't make the decisions and we don't make the decisions about what those priorities are, except for the ones I talked about. Healthcare workers, people in the ICUs, people in the hospitals, and of course, people and people, uh, nursing home employees. But beyond that, um, there are really hundreds of different types of scenarios where people need testing. Right. Dr. Cohen, just last question for you quickly. If there's one thing your company, your industry needs to be able to bring down these turnaround times, what is it? Well, there's no question that we're we're testing 700,000 people a day in America. I think the current estimation is we probably need 2 million tests a day conservatively. The only, so there are a lot of technology issues that are beginning, not issues, advancements that are beginning to occur. So we do pooling. I know you mentioned it. We actually beginning to pool specimens. We have approval for that to do three to one pooling in low incidence areas, which is areas like the New York area. 
So issues like pooling will dramatically increase our capacity. We're currently testing our capacity is 50, 60,000 a day. We're going to go up to 70,000. We will probably get to 90 or 100,000 within the next month to six weeks because of the result of pooling and other technologies. So it's an evolving story and it's incredibly fluid. But we are committed again to providing the tests people need to have done. Well, Dr. Cohen, we appreciate your time. Thanks for being with us. Thank you. And John, back over to you. Thank you, Meg and Dr. Cohen. Now, let's stick with the growing challenges in our testing capacity and our national response. Joining us now is Dr. Michael Olsterholm from the University of Minnesota. Doctor, thanks for joining me. Thank you very much for having me. So continuing the conversation that we're having, I just want to know, when it comes to testing and turning around the results, who is the best in the world at this if it's not the U.S.? And what are they doing that we're not? Well, what you have to look at, first of all, is that we're facing basically a, a crisis of reality hitting uh, with what we can actually provide. Uh, what you really want to know is, are we providing the level of testing that we need in this country to effectively control uh, the current pandemic? And the answer is an absolute no. And part of that is not because we're not doing enough testing. In some cases, we're not doing the right testing. Our group put out a document uh, several months ago about the whole idea of smart testing. The mantra of test, test, test is just wrong. Huh. Uh, what we need to do is to have the right test in the right population at the right time for the so right what, result what the to right have tests? a right impact. The right test in this case is PCR testing. But a good example is are you going to put workplace testing, which in many cases has nothing to do with the actual risk in that workplace, against the fact that cases coming into a clinic who are symptomatic, who are ill today, who are the people we want to identify so that we can, in fact, begin to do a contact tracing if appropriate, or at least let them know how to isolate themselves from infecting others. Yeah, uh, That's just a wrong combination of priorities. That's what we're talking about by smart testing. Yeah, and doctor, uh, I, I've got the uncomfortable feeling. Tell me what you think about this. Yeah. This is all taking on a Hunger Games sort of feel, where there's a group of people in the Capitol, you know, maybe your, your professional sports teams who get their tests and they get them fast, and then everybody else is kind of left uh, to the wolves uh, to duke it out. It, maybe that's not right. I wonder how it looks to you, and, and what would it take to, to solve for that? It, does this need to be centralized? Does the federal government need to take a more hands-on role that, that they seem to be trying to avoid and leave this to the states? Well, first of all, you're, you're really hitting on two different points that are both really important. One is, if it takes you eight days to get tested and get a result back, that's not smart testing. That's wrong. But that also says at least you're getting testing done. What we're worried about is that soon we will not even be able to meet the needs for testing because of the fact that the reagents uh, the things that we need to use to run these tests are in short supply. There was no sudden uh, major improvement in manufacturing capacity for many of these tests. And so that we're still trying to basically address a major forest fire with a garden hose. And as you've seen, the number of tests requested going up for clinical cases, so has the, then the burden on getting the current testing done. We've seen organizations that promised that they would have testing done for everyone who needed it when they wanted it within days who now can't deliver or they are taking eight or more days. Mm. So the central question is, why do we not have a national plan that someone is overseeing to make sure that there are all the adequate reagents, all the adequate test materials that we need to do the testing? And Doctor, and that's the challenge. You know who I'm most concerned about right now? School teachers uh, in the areas 
where kids are going back to school. I know there's all kinds of speculation about whether asymptomatic people, especially kids, are, are really a risk. But if the turnaround times are too long for people who are essential workers on the front line, and that's about to be you know, hundreds of thousands, if not millions, of teachers, boy, that could be bad. What should be done for the schools when it comes to this specifically? Well, uh, you talk about the teachers. Now, the really key issue is testing the students because that's the risk where the transmission is going to occur from students to teachers. Right now, we do not have the capacity to even begin considering testing students in any meaningful way. And in fact, if we have an outbreak in a school, it's going to take eight days in many situations to actually get those test results back. So you're absolutely right. But then again, this is part of the plan that we don't have. We don't have a master plan that says this is who is at a priority to be tested. I will tell you again, I would test clinically ill individuals, such as in schools, long before I just routinely test in the workplace. Mm. We don't have that organizational prioritization at all. So that's why we're where we're at in part is we have had this just great major increase in need. But at the same time, we've not had a plan for how to either address it or to prioritize within that need. Well, we need to get smarter about this, as you said, and fast. So your voice is important. Thank you, Dr. Thank you. And coming up, NBC Universal's streaming service Peacock debuts nationwide tomorrow, entering an already crowded streaming field. The details and what it'll take to capture market share still ahead. And later, new home sales in June climbed to the highest pace in 15 years. A look at who's snapping up those houses and two names to buy to cash in on the trend. And a reminder, you can always watch us or listen to us live on the go on the CNBC app. The Exchange is back in two. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. With Capella University's game-changing FlexPath learning format, you gain relevant skills you can apply to your career right away. Earn your degree from an accredited university and be confident in the quality of your education. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. Capella University is accredited by the Higher Learning Commission. Learn more at capella.edu slash accreditation. Welcome back to The Exchange. Markets right now trying to hold on to some uh, gains. The Dow is up 258 points. It was up 339 at the high. The S&P up just a bit, around eight points. The Nasdaq was up 43 points uh, at the high. Now it's down about 27. Now to Sue Herrera for a CNBC News update. Sue. Good to see you, John. Good afternoon, everybody. Here's what's happening at this hour. Protesters attached balloons to signs reading, the economy is costing us our lives during France's Bastille Day celebration. The scaled down event was used to honor frontline health care workers, but some are accusing the government of trying to divert attention from hospital shortages. Sweden is defending its no-mask policy despite having one of the world's highest death rates per capita. The country's health agency says social distancing and proper hand hygiene should be enough. 
Here at home, Tulane University is banning all parties and gatherings of more than 15 people. Violators risk suspension or even expulsion. For more on the university's new policy, you can go to CNBC.com. And Shaquille O'Neal stopping yesterday to check on a driver involved in a crash on I-75 in Florida. Shaq fist bumped at the deputies who arrived on the scene of the crash before going on his way. A good Samaritan deed. You are up to date. That's the news update this hour. John, I'll send it back to you. Thank you, Sue. And a big fist. Yeah, got a very carefully. big fist. Yes, you got it. Could be another accident. Uh, Amazon's building boom. No summer vacation for the middle class. And is it too late to get in on that pizza trade. That is all coming up next in today's edition of Rapid Fire. We'll be right back. It's time. Let's catch you up on a few stories that should be on your radar. Rapid Fire here with their takes are Seema Modi, Frank Holland, and Kate Rogers. All right, first up. Pizza stocks are delivering gains for investors during the pandemic. Shares of Domino's and Papa John's coming off new all-time highs and have surged since their March lows. Kate, I mean, who would have thought that pizza would be like the last thing standing uh, in, a, in a situation like this? It's, it's doing really well. John, it really is. And aside from just the stock performances, which are very impressive, these are two of the best performing restaurant stocks uh, year to date. The other two are Chipotle and Wingstop, of course, also very focused on carry out and delivery. But aside from just that, if you take a look at hiring, that's been really impressive, too. Both uh, Domino's and Papa John's have said that they were looking to hire at least 10,000 delivery drivers and other workers each during a time when the restaurant industry has just been completely decimated. You know, there have been 8 million uh, total layoffs and furloughs from March through May industry-wide. And look at these two companies really hiring in a big way. A lot of people thought this would be a trend. I don't think it's a trend right now because things are starting to uh, de-open, as we've been calling it, right? Restaurants are closing back down. People are turning to carry out and delivery big time. Now, Frank... Did Shaq pick a good time to get in on Papa John's or what? We were just talking about yeah. his massive fist bump, but my goodness. You know, he, he picked a good time, but also right now is just a good time for pizza. I think you also see uh, the buying of pizza go up during a storm, during finals at a college. So right now, a lot of people are stuck in the same place. Pizza is very easy to divide. I don't know if this is necessarily a fundamental story. It's just the, the reality is that when we're all hungry and you have to satisfy a large number of people in one place, pizza is an easy option. Seema, is there a bad time for pizza? Is there a bad time? I think for now it's a good time, to, as what Frank was just saying. But I think another big point, and I know this is a story Kate Rogers has been following, all these names have really invested in technology. And that seems to have really paid off for a name like Domino's. You look at Pizza Hut, it's really fallen out of favor, and it hasn't been as quick to embrace technology as the likes of Domino's or Papa John's. Yeah, all right. Next topic, Peacock. Part of our parent company, NBC Universal, launches nationwide tomorrow, and it's joining an already crowded streaming space. Our Julia Borston spoke with Peacock's chairman and joins us with what to expect from tomorrow's debut. Hey, Julia. Well, John, Peacock just announced it's expanding the number of hours of content it's offering for users, both of the free streaming version and the $5 subscription service. And it's also adding more golf and cycling. Chairman of Peacock, Matt Strauss, telling us that it's live news and sports and the fact that people can watch for free will help it compete. In a competitive market, we've actually identified a white space opportunity which is to launch a premium ad-supported streaming service 
that really taps into the breadth and the depth of the content that we offer at NBC Universal. Peacock is launching without deals with Roku and Amazon Fire TV. Those are two of the biggest distributors of apps like this. But Strauss says they're working on those deals. They're also working to get that premium tier offered for free through more cable providers. Don, it is already offered through Cox as well as, of course, Comcast. Yeah, uh, Seema, I, I, I can't help but think that this is kind of ironic. I mean, um, Comcast, big cable provider, uh, is used to perhaps uh, controlling distribution a bit. But NBC Universal, the Comcast uh, unit, can't get Roku and Amazon Fire to do these deals. It's a different world before the to- over the top, isn't it? So then, John, does that mean that its valuable weapon is its price, which is free? Although the premium premium subscription is four ninety nine, that's still a big discount to Netflix, which is around thirteen to fifteen dollars a month. I also wonder. I don't know if this is, might be an unpopular opinion amongst those here on Rapid Fire, but sometimes when I log into Netflix, I experience this, this uh, decision paralysis where I just get so overwhelmed <laughs> that I just sort of go back to TV. But I wonder in a way if that helps Peacock just sort of focus on quality versus quantity and if that helps sort of uh, beat out those fears around subscription fatigue. All right, Frank, while you're uh, eating that pizza, uh, you're going to watch some Peacock? Yeah, you know, I I love streaming services in general because you can kind of find what you want, and they have, like, a lot of niche programming. I think this is a great idea. Um, A lot of uh, forecasts for uh, Netflix subscriber growth has them possibly doubling what they put in their guidance. I think there's a lot of room for more streaming services, again, because of this ability to create programming, whether it's a TV show, a movie, or a one-shot documentary that really drills down on what people are interested in, and it's just... Who doesn't want more of what they are interested in? And that's what these streaming services provide. Julia, this isn't going to be Quibi all over again, is it? I don't think it's going to be Quibi all over again. Of course, John, you're referring to the fact that Quibi was designed for being viewed on mobile devices. That launch by <coughs> Jeffrey Katzenberg did not get off to the start that he and many others had hoped. I think what this really is, is more of an alternative to Hulu than it is of Netflix. And I think the fact that there is no subscription and you could really watch for free will give it a big advantage. Um, And the question just is how much more of a boost it'll get when sports and the like do come back. Yeah. I mean, maybe they should do an original about pizza delivery, you know, instead of of cops like pizza (laughs) delivery. I think that would do very well these days. People are into pizza delivery. Julia, thank you. All right, topic three. Amazon is building more than a dozen new facilities this year to meet a surge in demand and to help fulfill It's one-day prime delivery promise. The building boom could impact legacy shippers like FedEx and UPS, whose shares have been left in the dust behind Amazon this year. Frank, I was dumb. I thought, you know, Amazon, why are they investing in one-day delivery? Isn't two days fast enough? Then this pandemic hits. Oh, my goodness. Right. You know what? That's the big question in in the shipping industry. Is one day fast enough? But you also have to remember, in many cases, a rising tide lifts all boats. Now, take a look at this map. It kind of illustrates this building boom that we're talking about with Amazon building a lot more fulfillment centers and also delivery centers where its blue vans pick up packages around big and mid-sized cities. This is all about fulfilling their brand promise of that one-day free shipping if you have Prime. When you look at Amazon's ability to deliver on time in 2020 versus 2019, it's a lot slower now. In 2020, 80% of their packages were delivered in 3 to 15 days. In 2019, 80% of packages were delivered in two days. Now think about that. When you buy Prime, you spend that $119. You're hoping and expecting to get your packages faster. So Amazon really had to step up to fulfill that brand promise. All right, Kate, Amazon or Domino's? Who should we be more impressed with here? 
Listen, I am using Amazon more than I ever have been. I was surprised, though, to hear the stat that Frank just rattled off, that most packages are being delivered between 3 and 15 days. I guess I just order a lot from Amazon, but I feel like I'm getting something almost every day uh, because I'm not going to the store anymore. So I think these fulfillment centers are going to be more and more important. But, you know, I- I'm, a- I'm also a pizza fan, John, so I can't really, like, pick what's more impressive to me. Both very important in the pandemic, for sure. <laughs> All right. And finally, new data shows that the middle class might be getting priced out of vacations as short-term rentals see a surge in prices. Seema Modi, we got cabin fever. We need to get out, but, but we can't. Yeah, well, it's getting more expensive to get out. You're seeing as demand for vacation rentals rises, John, uh, prices are starting to rise, especially in these uh, cities and towns that are close to beaches and mountains. For example, Lake Tahoe, Florida Keys, prices for vacation rental up nearly 14 percent in the month of June compared to the same period last year. Marriott it, it invested in home and villas last year. It says it's seen in the past 10 weeks the highest in gross revenue since its rental platform launched last year. I guess one of the benefits, John, are the homeowners, those who are renting out their homes. Airbnb uh, finding out here that in rural areas of the U.S., it's earned over $200 million in the month of June. That's up 25 percent compared to June in 2019. So that that uh, vacation rental getting a bit more expensive, but alternatively helping some homeowners. So what are you going to do, Frank? Uh, Day trips? You know what? I'm from Philadelphia. Uh, somebody's dog is saying voting day trips, clearly. Uh, I'm from Philadelphia, and we take a lot of trips to the Jersey Shore, which is an easy day trip. So I think day trips are one solution, but obviously things are going to get more expensive as we've all been stuck in the house, and we all want to get out of our houses and go somewhere else. So everything that Seema is saying makes complete sense to me. And, Kate, I mean, your dog wants to get out. Uh, we can relate. I'm so sorry. No, it's good. <laughs> your dog's cute. I mean, we've... We've got cabin fever. He is flipping out off camera. Sorry about that, everyone. Uh, Yeah, I mean, listen, my apartment building is completely empty. I'm not surprised to hear that people are really flocking to these rentals. I think the prices are going to continue to to go up, but everyone needs a vacation right now, so you don't like to hear of anyone getting priced out during this time either. Yeah, there's always room for one more on Rapid Fire, Kate. Don't worry about it. All right. (laughs) Thank you, Seema Modi, Frank Holland, Kate Rogers, and your little dog, too. All right, coming up on The Exchange, from behemoths like Facebook to startups with 20 employees, more tech companies are allowing employees to continue working from home. We will take a look at what that means for both the companies and their landlords next. Welcome back. Tech giants like Facebook and Twitter, just a few of the firms that have already announced permanent shifts toward remote working. And as that becomes the new normal for many tech companies, uh, they're letting leases expire and they're consolidating office spaces. CNBC.com senior technology reporter Ari Levy just wrote about it. He joins me now. Ari, first of all, I haven't seen you for a while. Your hair looks very cool. You should keep it that way. It's got kind of like a 90s grunge feel. I love it. Yeah, John, I got produce in my hair, or product, I should say, not uh, not fresh produce. But uh, yeah, it's been a while. It's been a while. Good to see you, though, man. I, I, I miss you out here. So tell me about this uh, remote working and what it's going to do uh, for office buildings in a place where, uh, especially commercial real estate, really expensive. Yeah, well, John, I mean, one of the really interesting things that's happened here is all these companies that they never intended to go remote. These are companies, they had office space, they liked the office culture, they liked the ping pong tables and the snacks, um, and, and they were growing up in that environment. 
all of a sudden they were forced to go home and overnight turn into a remote office. Um, and what we quickly saw was that, yes, we all adapted Zoom and we all adapted Slack and we became comfortable with that. But there are all these other tools that allow companies to communicate and collaborate and to share code. Um, and so the companies had to start investing in this stuff right away. And what they saw was that their employees are really good at it. They're really effective, they're efficient. Um, and in some cases they really like being home. And so now you've got, you know, we're four months into this, companies have been paying rent for four months that, and, and for a lot of these companies, you know, this is a significant part of their, of their cash burn. It's a significant piece of what the, the amount of money they've raised. And now they're looking at it and saying, we have no idea what, what's going to happen with schools. Huh. Uh, we don't know what's going to happen with the pandemic. What we do know is that our employees are doing well. And to go back to your previous segment, they're able to go work at a lake by in, in South Carolina, or they're able to go up into the mountains as long as they can get service. But Ari, they can do all sorts of things that they couldn't do before. So it's really changing the face of commercial real estate for, in the tech industry. Part of the reason the campus culture evolved in Silicon Valley and eventually San Francisco was retention and lifestyle. They wanted all these people together, wanted them not going outside for lunch, but staying in, staying uh, productive. There were perks associated with that. I mean, how do you promote retention and lifestyle when people are working from home? Are they going to have to figure that out? Yeah, I, I guess, I mean, part of the answer is if there's no choice, then it's what everyone's going to be doing. So, you know, if the alternative is you, you risk getting sick and you risk getting your family sick, that's not a viable option. Uh, so the view is that the industry will evolve as the pandemic allows it to evolve. And what we're seeing is that there are all these benefits from working at home or working remotely that we hadn't previously explored or hadn't really considered. So if we get to a place two years down the road, three years down the road, maybe sooner, maybe later, where office culture becomes uh, viable again, then it will be. And, and you're going to see all sorts of discounts on the market at that point, right? I mean, instead of uh, these Ten to fifteen thousand dollar a month leases we're hearing about for small we work spaces. They could be half that. Is is you know that those are the kind of deals that we're hearing about that people would need to see a fifty percent reduction in order to, to to pay rent at this point. Yeah, I wonder, Ari, if you're hearing anything about uh, the use of social gathering spaces with distance. Uh, the companies might be planning on for down the line. I'm hearing a lot of talk from companies in Silicon Valley, VMware, for example, about we're no longer a hotel for office space. We're going to be a gathering spot and otherwise people can work at home. Uh, yeah, I mean, all, all these things are being explored. Um, hearing about retreats where you can go rent a ton of space and, and you know, make things very make it safe, uh, obviously have distance, people can wear masks as needed. I'm sure we'll see that. Um, you know, the, the shorter term story is that, uh, you know, the number of companies we're hearing about that are breaking their leases or just not renewing their leases, um, it's almost the, def it's the default choice at this point. Uh, and, and so, you know, I'm very eager to see what happens to downtown San Francisco over the next six months. I'm kind of scared to see what happens to it. Actually, I've been back to San. I live in the East Bay. I've been back to San Francisco one time since since early March. Um, what happens to to you know downtown New York City? What happens to downtown Chicago? Uh, you know, they're, they're going to have to get really creative in, in what to do with these tall buildings that are going to be vacant for a while. Yeah, we'll see what happens uh, once you know, Lord willing, this this pandemic eases. We hope it's sooner rather than later. I mean, I for one. Wouldn't mind seeing a bunch of human beings again. I like people. 
most of the time. I wouldn't mind a I wouldn't mind a barbershop, John. Now keep it, keep it, Ari that. Levy. I, I want to see that hair next time I look at you. Uh, anyway, Ari <laughs> Levy, thank you. That's one thing that shouldn't change post pandemic is Ari Levy's hair. For more on the Thanks, rise John. of remote working, be sure to visit CNBC.com. Still ahead, while millennials were criticized for spending too much on the likes of avocado toast a few years ago, they're now in prime home buying age and they're ready to spend, according to one analyst. He joins us with two housing stocks that could benefit as a result. That's next. Welcome back. The tech-heavy QQQs hit a series of record highs over the past three months. But guess which sector has outperformed it? Yes, the home builders. The ETF tracking those stocks is up 39%, doubling the QQQs gains. Home builder stocks are the obvious beneficiaries of post-pandemic housing boom, though it might be too soon to call it post. But there are other names in the space that investors should consider. Let's bring in John Lavallo, equity research analyst at Bank of America Securities, covering home builder uh, building products and RV stocks. John, uh, good to have you. Good afternoon. Thanks, John. Thanks for having me. So what's driving the home builder part? Is it, you think, an urban exodus? It's a good question. I think that the, the trend uh, really was in place before COVID. And if you think about sort of the demographic wave that's coming through the pike right now, there's about uh, 26 million millennials of prime home buying age today. That's going to accelerate to about 29 million in 2025. And at that point, it's going to, uh, the, that group will be about 3 million greater than the baby boomers at their peak in 87. So it's a very, very strong wave of demographic support that's coming through the pike. That in itself, I think, is kind of leading the charge. Put on top of that, COVID, and I think that you had folks that were perhaps hanging on to city life a little bit long, as long as they could, <laughs> um, sort of hitting the exit button at that point and saying, look, maybe this is the time to get out. So I think the demand trends were very much in place and moving in the right direction. We had a bump from COVID where things you know, sort of hit the brakes in late March and early April, and then now we're starting to reaccelerate again. All right, with, um, that so I think backdrop, you know, with that backdrop, you like... D.R. Horton and Masco. Why those two in particular? Sure. Yeah, I think D.R. Horton fits very well into this millennial first-time buyer um, story where they're really targeting the first-time entry-level buyer. They're going into markets and building new product at or below the existing price of a resale home in that market. That's very attractive to anybody, but very attractive to this millennial buyer that tends to like new or used. Uh, they're also the largest home builder by volume. That gives you a lot of uh, leverage in terms of procurement of, of land, labor, and materials. Uh, and finally, the company is transitioning to an asset light portfolio, which should really reduce risk and enhance returns. So that's the DR Horton story. In terms of Masco, um, the company has done a very nice job of pruning their portfolio over the past year or two, and now are left with two very high margin, high return businesses in plumbing and what they call decorative architecture. And that's really, think of paint. And if you think about these two businesses, plumbing and decorative architecture, they're both uh, very much brake fix oriented. So if your faucet breaks, you're going to replace it. If your four-year-old draws on the wall with a Sharpie, you're going to paint over that. <laughs> uh, they both have very good brand power. Think right. of Delta brand faucets and bare paint. And um, smaller ticket items that you know won't break the bank. Makes the final sense. point I'll make uh, sure the, well, the, final, the final point I'll make on make Masco point, yeah. is that go, yeah is that they um, 
essentially target DIY, right? So the products that they have can be done yourself so you don't need a contractor in the home where folks are still a little bit reluctant. Okay, so let me ask you a demographics question. What happens to the retirement buyer if, if they are going to like downsize given what's happened in the pandemic? Do you have any bets on that? Does the trend remain the same or does it somehow shift because of how preferences might shift? It's a very good question, John, and I think that it's, it's, it's actually part of the chain that is often overlooked. I, and I spoke about millennials to start off. It's very important to talk about that sort of baby boomer and where they're going to go. Our view is that you're going to see kind of downsizing into first-time entry-level homes, um, actually competing with the millennial generation in many regards, but being closer to you know, grandchildren and things of that nature. So I think you'll see another tale to single-family housing from uh, – older folks that are moving into into you know, closer to family. Quickly, if you can, do you think that means anything for the uh, Home Depots of the world? I think that there's uh, bare paint, for instance, from Masco is sold exclusively through Home Depot. Uh, so I think that the big box retailers are very well positioned. This COVID kind of uh, fallout has resulted in a lot of folks being home more and doing more improvements to their homes. So I think it should uh, be very supportive. All right. Got a little extra play out of you there for the investors. John Lavallo, thank you. Thank you, John. All right. Now, everybody, thank you for watching The Exchange Stocks Now, near session highs. You've been listening to The Exchange. Make sure you're subscribed to get each episode every day, same time, same place. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. So you need a business partner just like you. Like FedEx, who understands your passion for serving your customers because they have the same commitment towards you. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. What's more, FedEx Ground is faster to more locations than UPS Ground. Trust FedEx for timely deliveries. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively FedEx.